I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She, a podcast where women who are leaders in their industries, companies, and most importantly, their lives, share inspiring stories about obstacles they've overcome. 40 years of working in a male-dominated industry has prepared me for the task of interviewing these courageous, successful women, and to share stories and insights of my own along the way. Listen up, future leaders. This is Leading She. People asked, did you see a glass ceiling? I said, no, my head was down working. I was doing the job. And so many people look for that next opportunity. And I was really focused on doing that particular job and doing exceptionally well and growing my team. Today on Leading She, I'm excited. My guest is Joyce Russell, president of the ADECO Group U.S. Foundation. Welcome, Joyce. Uh, Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here. Yeah. Glad to have you and uh, look forward to this. I'm going to introduce you and then let you talk about your career. I've got a lot of questions for you, so get ready. As president of the ADECO Group U.S. Foundation, Joyce Russell is committed to making the future work for everyone. In 1987, Joyce joined ADECO USA as branch manager in Charlotte, North Carolina. The ADECO Group is $20 billion and is always in the top three in terms of size and is in the business of temporary staffing, permanent placement, career transition, and talent development, as well as business process outsourcing and consulting. In staffing, the ADECO Group covers many sectors, including office, industrial, technical, financial, legal, amongst others. From 2004 to 2018, Joyce served as the president of ADECO, leading the largest business unit of ADECO Group North America with more than 450 branch locations and approximately 1,600 colleagues in a diverse portfolio of clients. The foundation launched in January 2019 and focuses on reskilling American workers and helping to ensure work equality for all. During her time at ADECO, Joyce has firmly established her passion for working with people and providing new opportunities for both employees and companies. She constantly strives for growth, both personally and professionally, while remaining focused on work-related programs, partnerships, and investments that create greater economic opportunity for American workers. Joyce is a board member of Celsius Holdings, Inc. and serves as chair of the Compensation Committee. For the 2020 and 2021 term, she served as the chairman of the board of directors of American Staffing Association. Additionally, Joyce is a board member of Dress for Success Worldwide. She is a founding member of Paradigm for Parity and a member of C200. A lot of my guests are members of C200, an organization whose mission is to advance women corporate leaders and entrepreneurs. Uh, International Women's Forum, uh, corporate uh, women corporate directors, and has been a panelist and a participant at the World Economic Forum in Davos and Fortune's Most Powerful Women's Summits. Joyce holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business and Communications from Baylor. And Joyce Russell wrote a book, Put a Cherry on Top. Uh, We're putting it on our website as one of our recommended books, Generosity in Life and Leadership, which I've read. And there are many great messages in this book, which we'll talk about. And I have a number of questions for you about your career and messages about your success. So welcome again, Joyce. Uh, Thank you, Susan. It uh, it sounds like a wild and wonderful ride, and that's what it's been. Yeah, yeah. No, I I read the book, and I it is. It's uh, getting chills. It was a. It's been a great career. You've had a long career with one of the biggest staffing agencies in the world, and you 
were able to grow a business within ADECO from $300 million to $26 billion. I'd love you to talk kind of as a summary of your career, what you, you know, some highlights, and then how you grew that business. Well, I joined the company in 1987 and moved from Florida to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I always say I was really lucky um, in a timing uh, stamp from a timing standpoint. Got to Charlotte, and there were two small little banks here, one called First Union and one called NCMB. And if you think about the, the growth in those two banks, <laughs> today one is Wells Fargo mm -hmm. and the other is Bank of America. And so at that time, they were looking for talent. And I still think talent is one of the most important uh, pieces in a company's success. And so I got here in 1987 in the talent market. And so what I decided to do was dare to be different, to really make sure that the quality was there of the product, the people, the service was there, free on top, do it just a little bit better than anyone else and create value. And so we were very fortunate to grow the business in Charlotte, where I was a branch manager um, and our branch won rookie of the year. <laughs> and I always say you have one time to make a first impression when you join a company and it's that first year. And so we really, as a branch and a team, I had an amazing team, grew that branch um, more than any other branch in the United States as these banks were growing and looking for talent. Mm, that's wonderful. So you grew this uh, this business. I mean, that must have been a quite a ride, $300 million to $26 billion. Talk about uh, that. It was an unbelievable ride. Um, we, we were growing not only in country size, I think we were operating in four countries at that size at that time, but today we operate in over 60 countries around the world. And we changed the lives of so many different individuals, finding them great work, and then finding those great companies, great talent. So the ride was amazing from you know branch manager to area manager to regional VP to COO, and in turn, uh, president of the organization. And people always ask me, did you join the company thinking you were going to be president? I said, no, my head was down, focused <laughs> on the work, doing that job exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. um, and people asked, did you see a glass ceiling? I said, no, my head was down working. Right. I was doing the job. And so many people look for that next opportunity. And I was really focused on doing that particular job and doing exceptionally well and growing my team. And, you know, they just kept knocking and knocking and saying, could you take on more? Mm -hmm. And I kept asking David and the kids, hey, do you think we can handle five more states? Or is it okay if mom commutes to San Francisco for a while? And um, I really was very fortunate to have a team, my family team behind me as well. Yeah. Um, you've got a great description in your book about ADECO. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll kind of an excerpt from it. Our associates fill important roles at many of the country's major employers. They get, they help get new cars off the line, build navigation maps for the largest apps, and work in the medical equipment fields on products and save and improve American lives. I mean, you're really the intermediary. You're placing these people and and filling filling jobs, and it's a it's a big. Uh, it, and there's it, a big piece of that, Susan, like just temporary work. So you don't know what that company's like and that company doesn't know you. So sometimes you go into what they call a temporary role, but many times they end up as a full-time role. You took a look at them. They took a look at you. It's kind of like dating before you get married or yeah. trying before you buy. Right. And so it's a great relationship, especially for young individuals coming out of school right now to think, oh, well, let me go try that company yeah. and see if it's a fit. And employers try them. We did that in my company. It was called Temp to Perm. 
And yes. uh, and so we would hire the person, but you didn't commit to permanently hiring the person, which it can be hard to let someone go, as you know, when they don't work out. And so when you tempt a perm, they try it, you try it, and, uh, you know, you pay the agency. But then, you know, a lot of times we would hire them permanently because they did work out and they liked it. Absolutely. I think people are looking at culture right now to make sure they're a culture fit. And so that's one of the pieces. And like you said, attempt to perm, you can evaluate that culture, yeah. you know, and that that um, company's uh, drive and where they're going and passions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember 1987. I remember First Union. They were one of uh, we represented First Union when I was a mortgage banker. And we they were we were their customer as a life insurance company and placed loans with them, the mortgage banking unit. So I remember NCNB and I remember First Union. And uh, so a question for you, though, about the last 30 years, what what have what has changed in terms of in the last from 30 years ago, 1987, 35 years ago? What has changed uh, in the last 30 years? What are companies looking for today, the expectations? And then what are employees looking for that is different than 30 years ago? I'm sure a lot has changed, but what are the the biggest things? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I don't believe in 1987 people were really looking at purpose-driven companies and what was the cherry on top for that company. What What are the extra things they're doing around that? ESG, CSR, diversity, equity, inclusion, just so many things were not talked about then, uh, but were very relevant then. And I think companies are looking for individuals that have a growth mindset so that they really want to learn, be curious, and grow with those companies. And that was not talked about then as well. I have always been curious and a learner and had that growth mindset, but it wasn't talked about. The other thing that they're not talking about now is uh, really leaders with empathy. Mm. Leaders, uh, we've been through COVID-19, flexibility, remote, all the things and conversations that weren't talked about then as well. If you think about 1987, there would have been no way you wouldn't go into a physical office to work. And those hours might have been eight to five. That is not the case anymore. No. Well, we didn't have email. We didn't. We, we barely had voicemail. We had fax machines. I mean, it was so different. You had to be there, right? Oh, it was so funny. Susan, I was trying to, I was prospecting and I would leave a cassette on somebody's windshield. <laughs> People on the call right now are listening to the podcast going, what's a cassette? What's a cassette? You know? Right. Um, but really, it was unbelievable growth. And I, I, I use the philosophy that I did selling tomatoes at a farm stand to get those clients. So you have to understand, I was a fifth generation Floridian moving to a new town, Charlotte, North Carolina, that I'd only commuted through on Piedmont Airlines. Yeah, this is Piedmont. years ago. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I was a, a young girl, my dad was a farmer. I talk about in the book. And he would finish the fields of tomatoes. My dad was a big tomato farmer. And there was these two small cubbies called Heinz and Hunts. You all know them. Yes. They make ketchup. And they would come in to take my dad's fields to make ketchup. But there were about six weeks in between that, that the fields were available. My dad would say to his three girls, hey, y'all can make a lot of money if you want to pick these tomatoes on a Friday afternoon and sell them at the farmer's market on Saturday, Karen, my older sister, 
was very focused on studying and she went on to medical school. And then Christy was very uh, focused on uh, extracurricular activities at our church, et cetera. I said, dad, I want those fields. I'll go out after school, pick those tomatoes and sell them at an organic farmer's market on a Saturday morning. You all have a visual of that. Well, what you probably don't know is I had a card table and, and a fish tackle box for the money. And I would watch these women and men come up to these buckets. And as soon as someone like Susan got around a bucket, then there'd be somebody that like Joyce that got around the same bucket. Cause I thought Susan had the, was a good tomato picker. So she <laughs> must know where those good tomatoes are. And what I would see from behind that card table is I would see that, wow, they're all around similar buckets and there's 24 buckets out there. So what I realized when I got to Charlotte is where were the best places to work? Mm -hmm. I needed to get them in my bucket. Once I got First Union and NCMB in the bucket, then all the other companies thought, wow, she's got those accounts. Mm -hmm. We better uh, use labor, temporary labor and, and perm placement from her as well. So that's a great philosophy of thinking about where are the best prospects and customers to work with. Get them in your bucket. The same with talent. Mm -hmm. Get the best talent in your bucket and you will own the market as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that... Um you know, the tomato story, picking the tomatoes and making an analogy to, uh, you know, to employees and, and clients. I mean, I was going to ask you the question. You are a fifth generation Floridian. Your father, Wayne, was a tomato farmer and citrus grower. Your mother, Ruth, was a stay-at-home mom and later a teacher. And your maternal grandmother, Ruth Lillian Hodge, was born in Cuba. Um, and it just sounds like your family was hardworking and um, you worked for your father's company. When I was a kid, we, my parents had a strawberry uh, field and we had a garden, but they didn't pay me to, <laughs> to do it. So I'm really kind of jealous about this. I was, uh, I was their worker, uh, but they had a roof over my head. I had food and so forth. But, uh, but talk about your father's um, company and your drive and the ambition and how you work. So you were, you were picking these tomatoes going out and making a little business out of the, oh, with yeah. the card table and tackle box. Well, and I wanted to talk on the podcast a little bit about hard work. I think mm -hmm. it's still very important. Um, yeah. I'm going to tell you a little story over the Thanksgiving <clears throat> holiday. My niece, Sarah lives in Charlotte with three little boys, seven, five, and three. And so they were going to come over to visit my mom who was visiting for the holiday. And I had some leaves I had to get up from the yard and so after a while, three little boys in the house, you know, they need to get outside. And I had a task that needed to be done. So I said to them, I said, Hudson, Thomas, uh, would you all like to come outside and help me work? And they said, yes. And I said, and you can make $2 because we're going to fill four <laughs> buckets up of leaves. So they did, and they were great workers. And I said, what teamwork? And Thomas said, yes, and nobody quit. So my sister, Karen, uh, called to check on the boys and see how their holiday was. And they said, what was your favorite thing over Thanksgiving? They said, oh, goodness, we got to work at Aunt Joyce's house and we made money. And so it's so fun, funny how little boys and little girls still like to work and achieve things. And so I think we're doing sometimes too much for our children. Mm. We've got to let them work and learn that. I told both my children you know, you're going to go to a great university, you're going to great get a great degree and have technical skills, but everything comes down to hard work in the end mm -hmm. of that hustle. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so one of the things I wanted to make sure it was relevant on the podcast is we talk so much about work-life balance and I strongly believe in it, but you got to hustle and you got to have some hard work ethic mm -hmm. uh, to get where you want to go both personally and professionally. Yeah, no, I, uh, we're going to get to some of those things here in the, uh, a little later, but, um, yeah, great. I mean, that's what I did. I worked hard. I thought everybody was working hard, but not everybody does work hard. And working smart and going beyond the expectations, it's all part of succeeding. It really is. It, it is. And seeing the opportunities. In the book, I tell a story, and you, you've you worked on a strawberry farm. Or yeah. Your dad grew strawberries, so you know. So my dad at one time had a U-pick. And so I realized that um, some of the women didn't want to go in the fields and pick because they would get their shoes dirty and everything. <laughs> so I had no problem. I had tennis shoes on. They were dirty. So I went out there to pick the strawberries and I would put them in the baskets and put them up on the stand. Well, pretty soon I realized these women were driving up in these fancy cars and for 50 uh, cents a pint, they were buying my strawberries. So dad said, the more you pick and put up there, the more 50 cents you get. I said, I'm running in the fields. <laughs> want to get those strawberries and get them up there yeah um so anyway it was it was a joy i was really lucky to have i always say i won the lottery with my parents mm -hmm. and that they uh helped instill a lot of values that still come true and needed today yeah for sure um well that's that's how much we sold our strawberry uh pints for 50 cents but it wasn't my 50 cents it was my parents so i <laughs> <laughs> still still bugs me now that I'm seeing that other kids made money at this. Um, let's talk about your book, Put a Cherry on Top. And in the book, you describe what you mean by cherry on top. And you say, it's about thoughtfulness, the extra effort and attention to detail that makes everything just a little bit better. A cherry on top expresses love and appreciation for others, something unexpected. Putting a cherry on top in the staffing industry means going above and beyond what is expected and creating truly memorable experiences that build strong relationships and client loyalty and inspire high performance. And on the front of the book, there's a quote from Susan Packard, who's co-founder of HGTV, and she says, put a cherry on top is a delightful and insightful gem, a must read for all who aspire to be better leaders and human beings. So great book, um, easy read, and uh, talk about the book. Why did you decide to write it? Uh, talk about cherry on top, what that means for you. So I had been with the company for over 30 years and I was transitioning from running the general staffing business to running the foundation. Mm -hmm. And I had never had a window of time. And so on the cover of the book, uh, it says, uh, authored by Joyce Russell with Sarah Davis. So Sarah Davis had been my right arm. She'd been my assistant in the office for over 30 years. And she said, Joyce, you always talk about writing this book but you haven't written the book yet. So now there's this window of time that you've never had the gift of, we got to write this book. We got to get all these stories. And she pulled her little drawer open and she said, I have them all written down. You'd say chapter eight and you'd say this, you say chapter six and you'd say that. So she said, let's get together and finish this book in 19. So of course we did that in 2019 and uh, wrote the book. And I wrote the book really to leave a legacy. In our industry, there'd been no one who had written a book and told the secrets, told some of the stories to make others more successful than maybe we had been. And so what I did was I wanted to put every single lesson and um, gem that I thought would help another person, uh, both personally and professionally in the book. 
And it really is a cherry on top going that extra, extra little bit. I love to think about an ice cream sundae and it's so delicious, but you kind of save that cherry, right? That last little uh, bit of sweet. And that's really how we grew the business was the service aspect of putting a cherry on top, mm -hmm. going above and beyond. One of the, um, and, and one of the things I want to make sure of, I always say I'm planting trees of whose shade I will not sit under. Mm, I, I heard you say I, that on another I, podcast. I love it because you won't be sitting under the shade. We'll be gone at some point, right? But yes. somebody can still pull your book out and read it. And, and that's your legacy. That's, that's what you've left, right? Um, and so um, we did that. Um, one of the stories I wanted to make sure that I told on the podcast today was the Umstead story. And that was when it really turned, Susan. Man, I saw something I'd never seen before. So Coleman, my youngest son, was a lacrosse player. He was a high school All-American. And any of you who have children that are doing traveling sports know many times you leave work early, jump in that car, and head a couple of hours away to get to a game. Well, one of the things that Coleman didn't like about me was that I would always show up on the field in a suit with a Blackberry in my hand, looking like a working mother. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things he said to me is, mom, is there any way you could look like the other moms? I'm like, what do you mean? This is a really nice suit. <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to change into a pair of blue jeans and a cute top and mm -hmm. uh, maybe look more relevant to the other mothers that were on the side of the field. So I, I'm driving from Charlotte to Raleigh, typical mom fashion, skip lunch to get over there to try to get to the game on time. And I pull in a hotel called the Umstead. And I asked the guy to leave my car right at the front because I needed to run in very quickly to change my clothes. But I was super hungry. And so at the front desk, I just asked, and you all can get a visual of this, um, do you have an apple or something? Because many hotels will have that thing of fruit right there at the front. You can just right. grab a piece. So they didn't have one. They said, no, Miss Russell, I'm sorry, we don't. Didn't think another thing of it ran upstairs, threw on jeans and a, a cute top, pulled my hair back, and I come running through the lobby, and I hear this, Miss Russell, Miss Russell. Now, you all, I didn't know a soul in Cary, North Carolina, and I turned to look in the lobby, and there in the lobby was a gentleman in a tuxedo with a silver tray over his head with a red apple and a green apple, and he said, Miss Russell, we didn't know what color you might prefer. Mm. You all. Wow. You yeah. talk about service. That was the cherry on top. Two different apples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Both, uh, there for me. And so that's when we we pivoted that year and took service to a whole nother level. And you all know what I'm talking about right now, right now about service. It's not not in many places that we we go right now. We're so mm -hmm. looking for that salesperson to help us. So mm -hmm. so I I love that cherry on top story of the Umstead Hotel yeah. and getting that uh, apple that day. Right. Yeah. I mean, you give a lot of examples in the book. Um, uh, somebody wanting basketball game tickets that is it's special. Uh, another story was uh, getting tickets uh, for someone to go see the Oprah show. You know and to me, there is a theme of, on your part, high creativity, making it happen. You seem to really enjoy delighting people, making them feel special, and you, you get a charge out of it, coming up with an idea about how do we do something that separates us from the competition and show that person, employee or client, that they really matter and that we're thinking about them. 
Yeah. So that's what I see as the cherry on top. You just go above and beyond. And frankly, it's lost today. Uh, service is pretty bad, you know, and I try to be patient because staffing is so tough. But it's uh, anybody that gives any kind of decent service right now will excel, I think. Absolutely. I always think in my head, how can we dare to be different? Mm -hmm. How can we stand out just a little bit more? Yeah. How can we delight this person mm -hmm. uh, in the experience? So I'm just always on the lookout. And the special part of it, Susan, is it's personalized. It's not generic. Uh, one of my employees right now is getting ready to have a baby. And so I wanted to get them a blanket, but I asked what initials. So the specialness will be the blanket, especially for him, right? With his initials on it. So when she brings that baby home from the hospital, she'll probably pick that blanket because it has his initials. Right. And so I'm always thinking of that little extra. What can little we do? Little extra. Yeah. I, I just love it. I, I had a, when I first got in the mortgage banking business, I was calling someone every, every week and he would not call me back. And I thought, how do I get his attention? And somehow I knew that he liked Grater's ice cream. I don't, and that's a Cincinnati uh, ice cream, been around forever, and everybody knows Grater's here, um, and it's very good ice cream. Um, but I heard he liked it, so I thought, I'm going to send him Grater's ice cream in dry ice and see if, see if he'll call me back. And he did. He called me on a Friday late afternoon, probably hoped to get my voicemail, and I was there. And he said, well, hello, Susan, it's Steve. Um, thanks for increasing my cholesterol with Grater's ice cream, you know, so. I love that. And I, I did like business Grater. with him after that, you know. I love Grater's ice cream. Yeah. That was so creative. Yeah. We also order it and uh, we send it to colleagues a lot of time and we order all the chip ice cream. Yes. And the card says, when the chips are down, we always call Susan. Oh, yeah. You know I mean? Black <laughs> raspberry chip. It's the best. It it's is so the best. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You are a, uh, a natural born salesperson. You were like me when you were younger. Um, I think you sold Girl Scout cookies and, and I sold magazines and, uh, you know, I loved it and I, I love sales. And uh, what would you tell our listeners, maybe young women about sales and, and why, how you were successful in it? Well, I think it's a great place to start in any company. So I was very fortunate with ADECO to start in a selling branch manager role which was two things that are important there. Not only are you driving the business, the gas and the engine, right? It's <laughs> the gas and the engine sales. But I also was a branch manager, which was a P&L. And yeah. P&L responsibility is very important as you move up the ladder. So yes. I was very, felt very, um, I was very fortunate to get that role. I, I love sales. Sales is not, not scary or difficult. We had a great product that was going to change companies. And so you just have to believe in your product. And it's really just talking about the product. It's not like sales. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to sell. I'm like, right. I do want to talk about our product. It's going to change that company. Mm -hmm. So I owe yeah. it to them to talk about it. Right. I mean, sales is really about somebody having a problem to solve or someone needing something that we fill. And so it's really just about saying, here's how I'm going to help you. Here's what you need. And here's how I'm going to fill it. That's really what sales is. And then you go above and beyond. You do the cherry right. on top. Yes. Absolutely. So anytime I walk in a company, I am thinking about how can I help that person or that company be more successful? I'm not selfishly thinking about it on the ADECO side. I'm totally thinking about it from their perspective. How can I help them? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, you have children, uh, two boys, Bryson and Coleman, and uh, we all as career women, many of us have children. Uh, we've had successful careers and had children too. And um, there comes a time when we have to make decisions. Um, most of us have partners uh, with whom we are raising children. So I'm sure your husband, David, uh, traded off a lot about when, when it came time to uh, support the boys. Um, so someone described your son the way my Brian uh, soccer player was described, which uh, he's a competitive lacrosse player, as you've said, um, as someone who has no quit in him. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what somebody said about my Brian. So th they were watching their moms maybe, huh? <laughs> but uh, Coleman had, I love the story in the book. He had asked you and your husband something about playing the sport of his lacrosse and going to the games and you made a choice there. So tell that story. Yeah, Susan, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, because both of my children, um, Bryson was in school plays and Coleman was playing lacrosse. And by the time my second child, Coleman, was playing lacrosse in high school, he was a high school All-American, very good player. And we had always come to his games. But it was sometimes David and sometimes me, but very rarely both of us. So that by the time he was a senior in high school, he looked at us at dinner one night and he said, you know... I'd like one thing from you all, and I'd like you both to be at my seven home games at Providence Day. And so I said, oh, okay, we can do that. Well, that's actually harder uh, when you're traveling 50 states, you're gone about 80% of the time to be at Providence Day on those Thursdays at 4.30. So I came in the office and I told Sarah and Ansley I needed to make a commitment, which means I needed to land by 2.30 to make sure I could be on time to get to one of those ball games. So I made the commitment. We were all set, had it on the calendar, no issues at all. And David had it on, had it on his calendar as well. And so I had not anticipated a tsunami. Yes, a tsunami in Asia. And so uh, one of our biggest clients was an automotive um, manufacturer out of Marysville, Ohio. And we had about 3,000 associates, temporary associates on the line making cars there. Now, there were no parts going to be able to go from Asia to the plant. And when you have that many workers, what are they going to do? So the president of this auto manufacturer was going to fly from Japan, and he wanted to see me on exactly one of those Thursdays. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Decision to make. Do you go there or do you you know, follow up on your commitment to your child. So I used a methodology that I still use today called 10-10-10. And it's Susie Welch's book, How Will This Affect You in 10 Minutes? How Will This Affect You in 10 Months? And How Will This Affect You in 10 Years? So in 10 minutes, uh, when I would have made the decision to go to Marysville and not be at Coleman's game, he just said something very tough to me. He just said, that's okay, mom. You've chosen a deco many times over family obligations. Now, you all know what that would do to your heart. Oh. And then in 10 months, Coleman was the type of child uh, that would take risk. So he would drive a car fast or might try a beverage. And he'd say, hey, you didn't do what you said you're going to do. So I didn't do what I said I was going to do. And then I felt like it's about right now, the time, 10 years, he might pick, be picking that significant other out. And we'd be standing at a rehearsal dinner. And he'd say, mm-hmm, now we get to choose when we're going to see mom and dad. 
So in 10 minutes, when I made the decision to stay with my commitment to Coleman to be at the game, I, I was asked to send another leader to that plant. I picked another phenomenal female that went uh, to Marysville that day to make the decision on behalf of the company, what we would do with those associates. In 10 months, based on her decision, we won supplier of the year. Mm. Not supplier of the month, supplier of the year based on her decision. And in 10 years, which is now, we still have that amazing customer. But what it told that customer was, it wasn't about me. I was deep in leadership. What it told that colleague that I selected to go was I trusted her with the biggest decision the company would make that year. And what I told Coleman was, you are more important in that particular moment than anything else. And today, Susan, we have a relationship that is tight, tight, tight. Mm. Um, Coleman comes to me with all kinds of business questions as he started his own company. And I really feel like it's some of those decisions that I made and those yeah. choices I made. I always say you can have it all. You just can't have it all, all the time. Right. Yeah. And so we've got to make choices. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. And, uh, you chose your son and what the commitment live up to the commitment you made to him. A lot of messages in there. And one is trust your people, delegate to them. She could handle it. Um, you might've lost the account, but you didn't. And, uh, you made a decision and not some of these decisions are more clear than others. Some of them are not clear. And then if you go with that, Susie Welch, of course, uh, is successful in her, was successful in her own right. She was Jack Welch's uh, wife, uh, who's the CEO, was the CEO of General Electric, of course. And uh, her, her book, 10, 10, 10, uh, is out there. So it's a great, yeah, it's a great story. Um, Easy to remember, too. Yeah, All yeah, yeah. 10, 10 minutes, 10 months, and right, 10 years. Right, right. Yeah, uh, you talk in the book about hiring slow and firing fast, and I've always been a big proponent of that as I ran my business. I've always heard that before, and I coach someone, a young woman, and tell her the same same thing. And um, you talk about um, getting references, um, and that was always a big practice of mine, and it always blew me away that people would not get references. People who I had employed in the past that I knew things about that people didn't call me about them. You know, they could have, and I could have saved them a lot of time, you know, if they'd called me. But, uh, you know, it's that it's that off-the-record call. It's not just calling the people that they give you. Here are my references. Call them. To me, it's looking on LinkedIn, seeing who I'm connected with, that they're connected with, that they used to work with, and and call that person, try to reach them and say, hey, hey, this is, you know, we don't, have to talk about this conversation uh, anymore. This is confidential. What would you like to know me to know if if you were hiring this person? The strengths and the weaknesses, you know, and yeah. and those things. So you talk you talk about that oh, in the book. I'd love to hear Susan, what you say. Let me tell you something. I used to tell my people, this is what you need to get really good at is hiring. And I use a methodology from the book Who. Uh, uh, it is the best book on hiring, but it's very difficult to use the who methodology. And like you said, many people want to shortcut it. They don't want to do the difficult work. I always said, when you're checking references, you have to talk to the direct boss. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in the interview process, I love to use a who methodology. And it goes like this. Now, now, Susan, who was your boss at XYZ company? Oh, Randy, Randy. Listen, I, I hate to do it right now, but do you mind giving me Randy's cell phone number? 
Oh, I, I love it. it. I don't want to miss that. Um, so no, no, it's okay to get your phone out and look at it. And I'm just going to wait. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And then they would give it to me and then I would do it a couple more times. And many people at the end of the interview said, you know, it's been wonderful to interview with you, uh, but I'm not sure this is the right role for me because they knew <laughs> I was getting ready to call. Call their Randy. Last three, their last three bosses. Find out what, what, what you yeah. really needed to know, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. you're not going to get away from me. Right. And so uh, I always say, you know, you've got to check those references and you've got to talk to those direct bosses. And when I do, I ask them very simple questions like high points in the uh, role for Susan, the low points of the role for Susan. So I'm asking questions that they'd be more comfortable answering, mm -hmm. but I can't tell you the information uh, that I've gotten. And I do like you, I'm always uh, looking at LinkedIn and who are they connected with and who am I uh, connected with. So and I've hired good. At yeah. I've hired people that even though I've heard the weaknesses and every single time, I mean, every single time, those are the weaknesses. But I hired them anyway because I knew the strengths, you know, were good enough that oh, yeah. I could I could manage around the things that they didn't do well or they had issues with, you know. And the one thing about the WHO methodology when you use it is you're actually hiring them for a specific role and you're putting down those strengths and those traits and those mm -hmm. things that have got to be good because they can be weak in other areas because you're not going to use those weaknesses. You're going to use all their strengths in that, yeah. that role. Mm -hmm. um, but, but hiring, um, the other thing I think is really important right now is ruthlessly prioritizing. <laughs> and I, I use that, the big rocks in the jar. What are the most important things and making sure they go to the top of the list. There's mm -hmm. so much sand in life right now, but you got to get those big rocks in the jar first. And mm -hmm. so I think anyone yeah. that can do time management and really prioritize mm -hmm. uh, what's most important. Yeah, we used to say in the business, um, shoot the wolves closest to the dog sled. I love it. Yeah. I never heard that one. Oh, yeah. I want to steal it. Yeah. Shoot the wolves closest to the dog sled. And just like in the Iditarod, you know, if, if the wolves are coming at your sled, your dogs are going to die if you don't shoot the ones closest. So it really gets, the, it's a really good way to think about your priorities. What's going to really fall if you don't focus on that? You know? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's, so, uh, I think you had uh, Julie Holder on one of your podcasts, yeah. and I, lo I love that. And she said, what does the company reward you for? And are mm -hmm. you focused on those priorities instead of other things that are not important? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And sell so, yourself according to what is important to your company. I love that message from her in the podcast. I, 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 yeah. I do, too. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things, I, I wrote a chapter in uh, Sherry on Top that no one's ever written a chapter on is your boss is your best customer. Yes. And so many people don't realize that. And so what's important to your boss? What are your priorities of your boss? What are you supposed to be working on? And so, um, in fact, I, I tell the story in the book. Of, I was out with a customer and they were telling me, oh, I don't like my boss. I don't like their boss. And I looked across at one of our customers and I said, and I bet they don't like you either. Yeah. And he just stopped like, oh, my gosh. But believe me. The feeling might be mutual, so <laughs> you better fix it. Right. I mean, the, I think the message there is um, what I tell women, and I've, we've talked about this on the podcast, is uh, if you look at your boss as, like you say, your best customer and think, how do I make his job easier, her job easier? You know, yes. how do I, how do, I um, uh, do what helps him or her look better? All the while, I mean, that's the right thing to do. But then it helps you with your compensation, your promotability. You become super valuable to that to that customer, your your boss, right? 
Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and then your boss wants to talk to you. And I always say have three amazing things that are going on right now when your boss calls. Write that down. You never know when he or she are going to call you and say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm so glad you called. I wanted to tell you three things. So I always try to have three things written down yeah. you know, about what's going on that they might want to hear that are aligned to our priorities mm -hmm. and the goals and what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, communication. Yes. Well, talk about uh, you talk about in the book burnout and uh, the importance of self-care. And I've, I've worked very, very hard as you have in your life. And there, there were times when I just worked too hard and um, I became burned out and uh, didn't use self-care, which was maybe eating right, exercising, getting enough rest. Talk about burnout and what you learned. Well, I tell you, I'll tell you a bad story on me. I'm, I was bragging uh, to Ariana Huffington one day about how I was working and she looked over at me and she said to me, oh, you go to work drunk some days. And I look at her like, no, I'm not talking about drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, uh, working hard and staying up and working 16 to 20 hours a day. And she said, sleep is so important. So what I uh, do now, Susan, is I have a curfew on myself. If I'm at any function or just at home, I think, am I going to get eight hours of sleep? What am I going to end, you know, this evening for my wake up time tomorrow? And so I think that that is the number one thing that I focus on is getting enough sleep to function and making those decisions and reacting. Um, so sleep is really, really important mm -hmm. as well as exercise. Yep. I think it's important as well and prioritizing uh, getting out in nature and taking walks. And so um, I'm very focused on self-care right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ariana Huffington's book, Thrive, I read, and it's excellent. And I've given it out to some women that work too hard. And uh, she reached a point in her career, as you know, and she basically had a almost like mental breakdown where, you know, she was just working so hard and she learned the hard way that she needed to stop and really balance. So that's a great, great book. Great lady. And I think sleep is just easy to control. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, unless you have a newborn, which is not so easy then. No. But other times it's really disciplined mm -hmm. about putting yourself to bed. Just yeah. Like you were one of your children. Yeah. Well, you talk about this one I loved uh, in the book. Um, you talk about going to the fire. Confrontation means you care. And uh, it really is about having tough conversations with our direct reports. And I found that many managers, and, and I will throw men in this, not to say that men all do this, but they will avoid having those direct conversations. Maybe they're afraid we're going to cry. Um, they're afraid to have that difficult conversation. But you have to, right? I mean, confrontation, the, having these direct conversations, going to the fire, as you say, is really important. Well, one of my bosses said when I wasn't confronting one of my employees at times said, oh, well, you must not care about Susan. And I said, what do you mean? I care greatly about Susan. She said, well, you, you're not telling her. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, wow, I really do care about people. So I think it's the way you tell people and that you have enough deposits in their emotional bank account to make this withdrawal. And I think it's the care in which you deliver the conversation. And so to me, I started thinking of it like an Oreo cookie. I want to make sure I have enough compliments in, you know, and then the cream filling is going to be maybe a, an emotional withdrawal and then make sure I have enough compliments on the back end of it. And that my employees really know, wow, 
she does care about me to talk about that. I have an employee right now that's maybe putting a few things off. And so it's, it's not, it's unlike her. And so something else must be going on. So I need Mm -hmm. to find out curiosity about what's going on to make sure that she's not, you know, prioritizing the things that are really important right now. So I started talking about in my head to myself, confrontation means you care choice. And so anytime we had a, a, a customer problem, I would get in the car and drive out there if I could, or I'd get you on the phone. I wouldn't send you an email. I wouldn't text you. I want to go right to you and say, Susan, we must have sent you an employee that didn't work out. I want to let you know you're not going to be charged for that employee. I sincerely apologize for that. And I've already got a replacement on the way. So you need to just quickly go there um, and and uh, be physical if you can right. in any kind of situation. But, yeah, face-to-face and, and yeah. personal. And it's that's another lost art is uh, make sure you tell people over the phone uh, not by text or email and avoid the, you know, the uncomfortable, you know, conversation is to really call them or, or better yet, like you say, go meet with them. Yeah. And, and say you're sorry. Yeah. You didn't mean you didn't. I always say people don't wake up to mess up. You know, right. But stuff does happen. Yeah. And so um, I think anybody jumps over to your side when you say, I'm sorry, and I'm going to fix that. And I take accountability mm-hmm. for the situation. Sure. Take responsibility. It'll go a long way with the relationship for sure. You talk about high-performing athletes and often how perseverance and time and energy they put into the sport. And you reference Tiger Woods, which I I do often, where a lot of people don't realize that sometimes he'll hit a thousand balls a day. You know, you know, how is he so good? He practices. He puts the time in that not everybody's willing to do. Uh, and you say in the book, a high energy level and strong work ethic are half of what it takes to beat the competition. And I did that in my career uh, for many years. And I had a question for you about that. How how did you know that how hard the competition was working so you could work harder? Well, uh, we always competitive shopped our competition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but, but the competition is usually a person. It's not a brand. Right. It's usually a very yes. special um, individual. But anytime we were doing a presentation, um, I would fly everybody in the night before. We'd have maybe pizza, but we'd go through the presentation where where you were sitting, Susan, where the other people were sitting in the room, who was going to speak, who was going to own the questions. We prepared. We over-prepared. So we went in the next day, we might be um, putting up a technology presentation, but we'd have backup on paper in case something went down. We were ready for anything you might throw at us. And you would know, wow, this company cares about my business because I could tell from the preparation, um, the research, uh, we were looking at a price increase one time with our customers. And I said, oh, no, no, we can't give a price increase. Did you read their quarter three earnings, they're having a difficult time. Hmm. And then they realized, okay, they know we're struggling over here. So they're going to hold their pricing right now. So you really need to know, you know, and, and prepare for anything, any situation that you're going into. And that tells that company or that person, ah, they, they care about me. They did the research. I ran the torch in the Sydney 2000 Olympics 
uh, because we staff 10,000 temporary associates for those games. And when I meet with someone, they'll say, oh, you ran the torch in the Olympics. I said, oh, you did research on me. What does that, <laughs> that tell me? Right. <laughs> I was important to them. Right. You were important to me. I knew that story. So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And you read the book, Susan, for this podcast. You know, um, I would absolutely say, yes, I'll do your podcast. Not only do I think uh, you do a phenomenal podcast and the information that you share out to your audience, but you did your research and so yeah. I'm voting with my time right. to be with you. And yeah. voting with your time is very important. And I want to tell the audience, be careful with that. You need to vote with your time for the most important things and be present. Put that cell phone away, that technology away. Yes. Um, and look that person in the eye and give them your full presence. Right. Very important. I That was part of the legacy I left with the company that I, I retired a year ago. And we used to have legacy meetings with Susan. And I would I typed all this out and I sent it to them. You know, here's how what I did. Here's what I just like your book. Here's how I did it. Here's what I did. Take what you want. Leave the rest. And one of the things I said was when you're out with a customer, put your phone away. Don't check it, not even once, because it means that something else is drawing your attention that isn't them. And that's disrespectful and it can be rude. Yeah. And I think the device now is even on our watch and you're looking at it and pressing it and it's yeah. uh, kind of irritating. You want to say to the person, I'm here with you. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever's yeah. happening there is not important. Uh, the other uh, uh, topic I wanted to, to talk about before we end today was just about your friends and relationships. And I always say you're the average of your friends. So when you elevate your network, you elevate yourself. And I used to tell my children, you know, friends are like elevators will take you up or take you down. So yeah. make sure you're, you're going um, in the right direction. I've got some fun stories about the power of relationships in the book and starting a company with Magic Johnson. That was a, one of the highlights in my career mm -hmm. and uh, what we did with that. So yeah. people have to read it, but it's a, it's a great story. Yeah, it's a great book and it's easy. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to my woman that I'm coaching right now and uh, make sure she, she reads it. And she actually is in uh, a recruiting uh, business. Uh, she just started up a business unit, small little um, oh. recruiting group. And I said, Oh, you gotta, you gotta listen to this one. You gotta read the book. So oh, cherry on top. Uh, and I'll close with this. I want to find out, I have one more question for you, but, uh, a quote at the end of the book is really good. The cherry on top is not just one thing. It's the cumulative impact of being thoughtful, kind, and considerate and having a spirit of helpfulness and generosity. We get to choose how we live our lives, how we treat others, and ultimately how we, we will be remembered. Don't miss the moment to go above and beyond to bring joy and happiness to others. Always put a cherry on top. It's a great uh, quote there at the end. Thank you. So, Thank you. Yeah. Um, you said a really important word there, uh, at deciding or doing. And so uh, we had a former CEO of ADECO, and he used to say, Joyce, there are five frogs on a log, and one decides to jump. How many frogs on the log? And I'd say, I don't know, four, one decided to jump. He'd say five. Deciding and doing is two completely different things. Right. So there's a lot of people, Susan, that talk, but there are very few people who do. Yeah. And so we've got to be the doers that the really doers. make the difference. Overcome resistance, overcome procrastination, and just do it and risk that it's not perfect, right? So great, great message. Uh, deciding to do something and actually doing it and jumping. You know, somebody told yeah. me when I started a biz, my business, 
jump, there's water in the pool, you know. Not be afraid yeah. there's no water in the pool. There is water in the pool, you know. And one of the other things I think about with my employees is the tightrope. And I always want to say, I'm a huge net underneath you. You just go across. Yeah. And when you fall, you'll bounce in that net and you'll go right back up. Right. And I got you. I got you. Yeah, take net. a risk. I've, yeah. I've got your back is, is yes. what I hear there. Well, exactly. it's been great, Joyce. I've loved getting to know you. I love the book. I have uh, enjoyed hosting you today. You're just full of energy and positivity. And uh, we are, I'm, I'm older than you, but uh, we are of the same era. I remember 1987 pretty darn well. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. But one more question before we go. So thanks, thanks for being a guest today, uh, and we'll close out. But I'm just curious what your, what your boys are doing. Bryson and Coleman, you said Coleman has started a business. Oh, gosh, this is such a great story. So Bryson uh, is with Saatchi out of London. My oldest, he lives in New York City mm. in Brooklyn in the hip side of yep. New York over there. And he's doing really, really well. I'm really proud of him. And then Coleman uh, was an oil and gas trader. And he left uh, that business and started his own pet care company. I don't know if you know, but 13 million households got a pet last year. And so he started Shinyu. Um, S-H-I-N-Y-U, which means dog's best friend in Japanese. And so he does premier pet care, uh, dog walking and sitting because it's uh, pets are like a part of your family now yes. and your children. And so he does uh, that business, which I'm so excited that he's an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. Um, and I always felt like I was an intrapreneur inside of a deco, uh, but he's actually being an entrepreneur. So I'm, uh, I'm still married to David and have two wonderful children. And this is been a great life. I've loved every minute of it. It's been wonderful to be on your show today. Yeah. Susan. Thanks for joining me. It's great. It's a uh, great stories about your kids. And uh, yes, pets, we just got a puppy two months ago. So we, we do spend a lot of time and energy and money on our, on our pets. So <laughs> I'm sure he's going to do well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for joining me today, Joyce. It's been great. And um, I wish you the best. Yeah, an impressive career. It's just been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.